0: So, Bob emails, let's answer them, from the patrons, what do you say? Yeah. Patron Anna from Hungary says, I've listened to the episode called Therapist Superpowers, and Bob said his superpower is telling stories to his clients. Yeah. He told an example story about the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, I yeah, it. that one. I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. I was wondering if you could ask him next time to tell more stories. I would enjoy it a lot if there would be an episode dedicated to Bob telling his stories. Thank you very much. So, Bob, do you have more of these stories in your repertoire that you can share with the listeners right now?
1: I have one for every occasion kind of thing, but I can't remember them unless I need them. So, And you probably know this story. This story, when I was... Younger, and was working at that Linehan Clinic teaching DBT skills. I was teaching radical acceptance, and it's a hard thing to do to teach a thing and not do it. And so at the time, um, I was still strung out on that person I dated back then. And what I what happened to me is I would see her car, her style of car, going down the road. And every time I saw that car, did I tell you the story. I must mm-hmm. have told you the story. Well, you told me this portion of the story. Yeah. Was it a white Subaru or something? It was a, no, that's Colleen's car. Um, oh. Well, not anymore, but um, no, it was a black Honda Civic Hatchback. Oh. So I'd, I'd see that car and it wasn't like I'd just see that car. Because the thing about it is, is, you know, I still loved her. I was still like pining. Mm-hmm. And this is six years after a very short relationship. Which is normal. Yeah, to some degree, except, you know, I was dating that whole time. I was with somebody for an entire year. But It's also normal. I It sucks, for sure. Yeah.
0: But I, I just want to point out that it's a very common occurrence to have a short relationship that was very intense. Very intense. That takes a long time to recover from after it ends.
1: I think for me, what was going on, though, is I refused to accept that it was over. And so every time I'd see one of these cars, it wasn't like I'd just see a car. It's like my heart would jump out of my chest and grab the bumper and get dragged down the road by it mm. as if as if something would happen as if something magical would happen if I saw if that was actually her car
0: interesting, I don't know if you've told this portion of it, what
1: was your heart wanting or thinking so when that relationship ended, what I told myself was I'll never be happy again, so that's a prediction and I was pretty why did you certain think that? of that? Because I had never been that, because until then, I had only been with, well, let's see, how do I want to say this? I'm grumpy and irritable. And when I was in college, I lived with this guy, uh, it was my best friend's roommate. And my best friend went home for the summer and I I subletted his room. And me and that guy spent the summer together hanging out, just hanging out watching fucking Mike Tyson boxing. I didn't even like boxing, right? And whatever. And I used to really enjoy His company he's a really good guy and it's the first time i was ever with somebody that i we weren't dating i'm not like that but we we were living together and i was not grumpy and irritable and i was grumpy and irritable with everybody
0: so let's drill down on that for a little second too because i think that's a that's an important bedrock for the rest of this because when you're with your yeah i almost almost said her name um you know the significant relationship before uh you know, a previous relationship before you got married yeah. to Colleen. Right. This would have been 90s, early aughts? Uh, 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah. Normally, when you would say that that you're grumpy and irritable, I would think, huh, Bob, grumpy and irritable? The only thing I can really point to that I think I saw the tip of the iceberg was one time, I think it was Stacy and I were walking I think the two of us were together walking by your house. Oh, shit. During the pandemic Yeah, times, I remember that. Yeah, It was a summer day, yeah. and I'm like, we're, we were walking. We were on a, one of our epic walks during the pandemic and right. just getting outside, da-da-da. And I'm like, oh, we're not that far from Bob's place. So we walk by, yeah. and you were doing some yard work. You were putting some... You were getting um, sticks and stuff. You were piling in the front yard, or something. Yeah. I come around the corner of your driveway, and you had one of the most grumpy faces <laughs> I've ever seen, and you didn't recognize me because you didn't you didn't think that the two of us would be coming over. No, no, yeah, right. And so, I I'm looking right at you, and you you have sunglasses on, and I, I can't really see your eyes, yeah. and you just had the grumpiest, most irritable look, and uh... then, and I as i was approaching you you still were kind of in that zone and then finally it took a while for you to be like oh it's you and then and then you became the version that i see you as so would colleen be able
1: to say oh yeah there's a good amount of time where he is walking around like a grump yeah irritable short-tempered not short-tempered so much as i because i'm you know i i tend to be more withdrawn when i feel that way yeah um yeah, Qu- yeah. Quiet and... Quiet, but not, not the good Not kind. approachable. Yeah, not the good kind of quiet, yeah. 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 Because that would be surprising to
0: listeners, because it's it's surprising to me. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I have do Because I don't,
0: I don't see that side of you. Right. I'm trying to think of... There's got to be... In all of our times together, it's just like there's got to be some time when I would have seen that, but I don't know if I have. Hmm. So, what is that mode, by the way?
1: Well, I think what it is is basically I don't feel safe, so I... Uh, stuff a lot and as a result I I get irritable and grumpy.
0: You don't feel safe relationship wise. Yeah. No. And so you feel hurt and scared. Yeah. And no way out. Right. You're not feeling very good. Right. Are you also trying to send a message of I want you to know that I don't feel safe?
1: I'm sure that's true. It definitely has a communicative function. Um but it's not like that's like foremost in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my people, we are good at the silent treatment. (laughs) What do you mean your people? The Catholics? The Irish Catholics, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the bedrock.
0: Then with your 98 girlfriend, 1998 girlfriend. Oh,
1: so when when we were living together, I didn't feel that way. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's actually possible for me. And I understand that a little bit different now than back then. Um, Back then I thought, oh, that's sort of magic. Um, I think now I look back on it and I think I never really settled in with her. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was still auditioning for the part mm-hmm. and was more like the guy you saw when you when my face changed when you were coming up the driveway. Right. Because you lived with her for what like 6 months? 8 months, yeah. And you
0: were very smitten. And, oh yeah. And Yeah. I don't know if you saw it this way. She she had a lot going on in her life. She seemed like she was the sort of woman that had a lot of options. I guess that's that's the the way I would put it. Yeah. Where
1: if it didn't work out with you, there were 10 other guys. Oh, I'm sure she had no trouble. If she wanted to, she could find it. Right. So I. I <laughs> so, you know, even that was funny because back before we started dating, we were friends and we used to get together and play cards and hang out and have a beer or whatever. I used to date a lot. And she'd say, How do you get all these dates? And I'm like, Well, I ask. <laughs> I was like, You could ask, but she, cause she wouldn't ask me. So. So anyway, so living with her... Not I, to say that you're not a catch. Oh, thanks very much. At all.
0: You, you know? You're a total catch. Yeah, right. Okay. And I got the vibe that you felt like she was a catch. that That's more the point, is that that would lead you to be yeah. more on your toes when yeah. you move in with her. Why would somebody like her be interested in
1: somebody like me?
0: Why because? you wouldn't sort of become your true self where you could kind of relax a little bit. Yeah. Especially in that first number of number, months. months. Yeah. That, that's my point. I wasn't trying right. to.
1: No, me. no, I'm not bothered by any okay. of this. Yeah. So then she dumps you and yeah. then you start seeing her car. And I, yeah, one time it was so intense. I drove by the fiddler Inn, and there was a black Honda civic hatchback parked there in their lot and I hallucinated her license plate number. I actually thought I saw. Yeah. So I drove around the block again and checked it, and it was the wrong. I mean, I really did. I hallucinated it, and I went home completely shook up and heartbroken because holy, that was how bad it could get. Is I I'd actually see what I wanted to see as opposed to what was there.
0: Yeah, that that's also very common in grief. Uh, it's yeah. more commonly discussed and storied around death right yeah. if you lose a spouse or a parent or someone people will hallucinate that they saw yeah. the individual they'll right. come around the corner and, and there's their mom there, at yeah. the sink and then they rub their eyes and right. their mom's are there our, our mind will insert the individual because right. uh, we miss them so much right. or we're just so habituated to them like with pets I think is another example yeah I will still to this day come around the corner. I'll think I'll see one of my cats that died, right? And I'll be, huh? And then, oh, well, of course they're not there. So you see the license plate, you hallucinate it, and then what is the heart wanting in that moment? Are you thinking? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you thinking, okay, I can win her back? Yeah, that's what you are thinking. Yeah, I there she
1: is. Yeah, I can I can go to her and I could convince her to be with me again. Right. There was a book project I spent two years working on. That was a, an idea that well, I really came up with it, but we were working on it together. And when we broke up, I said, I got the video camera and the book, and she got the dishes in the apartment. And I worked on that book for two years, solid. I taught myself how to paint. I was devoted to it with the notion I... No, that, that was partly
0: I, her idea.
1: It wasn't. It was my idea, but oh. we were, we're going to work on it together. Oh. I mean, we came up with it. I, I came up with it when we were hanging out one day. Oh. And... Right. um, doesn't seem like a her idea. It seems like a you it's idea. It's a me idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I worked we, we've on We've never it. told anyone what that book was, yeah. have we? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. It's out there. It's good. It's a good... Yeah, and I have most of it still. It's in my closet anyways i thought if i finish it and i get it published somehow i'll get her back totally nuts and it's not like i would say this to myself it's
0: not nuts it's normal
1: so so i devoted my time to that and so every black honda civic hatchback was was her car as if that would mean something as if that would be a hope and then it you know i moved in with the todd and she moved out of state she went she went somewhere else and and i still saw that car yeah and i had Train my body to just see that car everywhere. And they are. They're a very common car. Yeah. They're everywhere.
0: Especially back then.
1: Yeah. yeah, back then. I don't know if they are anymore. I stopped. Anyways, so I'm teaching DBT skills. I'm teaching radical acceptance. And I'm like, you can't teach this and not do it. You just can't.
0: And radical acceptance. You can't teach it. Yeah. Unless you practice it.
1: Yeah. You feel like, an, like a jerk face if, if, I, if I... So one day I was leaving that clinic and I was coming north on 15th over there by the U crossing a campus way, camp, Campus Parkway. And I saw one. And I thought to myself, okay, if, if you're going to accept that that relationship really is over, what would you do? And I thought, well, I'll turn my head. Is that the practice is to yeah. ask questions like that? Yeah. Like, if
0: I were to accept this, right. what would I do?
1: Because what, what is true is that relationship is over. Now, what's not true is anything that's predictive. I mean, we don't know if it's true. So, I'll never be happy again was a silent. So, if somebody said to me, well, are you guys together? I'd say, no, no, we broke up, but would be unspoken as, and I'll never be happy again, that prediction. So, I said to myself, well, what would you do if you were going to accept that at least right now? I mean, I don't know if you'd make a bet on it ever getting anything again, but, but at least right now it is over. What would you do? And I said, oh, well, i turn my head and i go back, go north on 15th where I'm going. And mm-hmm. I drove home. And uh, I did, and as soon as I did that, I started crying. And this is six years after, because it was like it—it it was like it was happening again, like the breakup was fresh. And I think the really the truth is is that I refused to accept that it was over, really over. So I turned my head and I went north and cried, and then the next time I saw one, and the next time and the next time, the same question: What would you do? And I turned my head and I go where I'm going. And after about two months, I stopped seeing the car. And I stopped looking for her. And I was still dating. I mean, I was dating the whole time. But um, I wasn't really open to anybody. Not really. And then about a year later, I met Colleen. And I'm convinced that if I hadn't done that, I would have dated Colleen for probably a couple months and then found some reason to not do it unless she broke up with me first. Um, Because really i i wasn't open to it so what i did was i let go of the prediction that i'll never be happy again and let let that be a question i don't know if that's true it might be true right now but i don't know if it's true tomorrow or next week or next month was it true no it wasn't true at all so the point of the story is is to teach radical acceptance that what you choose to accept you want to make sure it's a 100% fact and not a prediction and not a not a theory, not a not a guess, not a hypo, hypo, hypothetical. Well, we do this because we learn
0: through experience that it's less disappointing to predict the bad and have something good happen. We tell ourselves that anyways. Yeah. It's like for me when it's the winter in Seattle right now, I don't predict that there will be sun and nice weather because that doesn't often happen. It could happen. We're yeah. in February right now. Right. It it's it you know Pretty there's great. been 75 degree days around this time of year, M- March maybe more likely, but yeah. it's not very common. No. So I wake up in the morning, I just figure it's going to be 55 and overcast like right. it always is. Yeah. So when you go through life and you're disappointed and people let you down and they reject you and harm you or you rarely felt as if you really feel or ever that you're secure or accepted or loved or safe then it feels easier to just predict that things will never change because why get your hopes up i think that's why people will do that unfortunately and it of course locks people in often on the the not getting it because if you believe it's the it's the surrender mode to the schema right if you have a schema that people can't be trusted right one strategy is to surrender right say well it's it's better to just give up and let it happen than to fight it and so what you did was not necessarily to fight it but to to just add a question mark
1: like well maybe that's true but I don't know, I can't I don't predict it. The, that's true. the All future. All I know is it is over. It is over now. Um so I let go of the prediction and the grief came. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, so what's it's the boring. moral of the story that you're trying to teach people when you're telling the story? That it is essential that what we tell ourselves to accept is 100% just the facts and nothing more. Cuz life's hard enough without adding a layer of that sort of thing onto it what's an example in dbt that this story would provoke
0: in you i don't know what you mean so i'm guessing that in dbt you'll have some folks who will they might say something like well i know that my mother and my husband are always just gonna let me down yeah and that's just the way that it's gonna be or even something similar to you where they literally believe that They'll, they'll never be happy again right. because they had a breakup. And what you're trying to help them to do as a part of DBT radical, you know, that's, I'm guessing, where your mastery really shined in the DBT skills group because you can talk about the skills, you can yeah. teach the modules, you can yeah. send the handouts out. Right. But Requires, as Linehan would be able to do, a lot of inspiration to get the individuals, the clients, the students to really understand what is being told to these people and also to believe that it might be able to work. You know, you're kind of a spiritual leader, which I believe therapy often involves. I mean, not necessarily spiritualism or any kind of spiritual life, but the. I remember this if it was one of my little post-it notes that i wrote to myself when i was first figuring out what therapy was and it was one of those post-it notes that i put on my on my poster board yeah right on when i was an intern it was something along the lines of therapy is about inspiration uh, or i can't remember the exact word yeah. you know, inspiration or convincing charisma i think was in there oh. essentially a good therapist, and there's different styles, but sure. a, a good therapist inspires a client to go on a healing journey. Right? You can tell someone in a radical acceptance will help you, and here's how, and here's how you do it. Here's the technique, and research shows that this works. And this is a part of our module. Yeah, it's a that's one thing. It's a whole other thing to reach inside of their soul and give them that little push. The inspiration, the hope. And also to self-disclose what you're self-disclosing in the story to show I know how hard it is. It's not an easy thing, and it's not without its pain. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about radical acceptance. I'm talking about that moment when I saw the car, and I asked – it wasn't easy to ask. I asked myself, what would I do if I accepted that the relationship was over? And I had to – answer that question and then and then i had to that meant i it's not just i turn my head and drive down the road it's i have to actually accept that the relationship is over i have to really just let that be true and i have to change my certainty about never being happy in the future to a question mark i have to make that choice and it's all in the same ball of wax and it's and it's it was painful. I cried. It was hard. It was. It would be easier, in a sense, to, in that moment, to not do that. Yeah. But I did it because. Well, why did you do it in the moment? Did you believe? Did you have some hope? Or were you just so convinced by the DBT module that you thought you'd give it a shot? What 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 did you? What motivated
1: you? Oh, my motivation was strictly for my students. If I'm going to teach it, I got to do it. So. Butler syndrome. I wasn't doing it because I partic- I wanted any particular outcome. I did it because I felt You didn't like, do it for you, you did it for your students. I yeah, just yeah. find motivation. I got a lot yeah, it Yeah, I mean whatever gets you there. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know,
0: you also could have done it for your own sake. Right? Yeah. What so if you weren't teaching a class, would you still be in that zone? I mean, maybe What do you mean? If you didn't have a reason to practice what you preach so that you could better serve your clients? Might you have been? Might it have been years? I mean, oh, I'm guessing. Eventually. Would I still be in
1: that zone? Yeah, I think I. Well, who knows? But yeah, I think I would. Yeah. You know, there's a part of this that I never tell. Oh. And still, aren't going to tell. No, <laughs> or, I'm not dangling a carrot like that. I'm oh. Not, not gonna. I saw her. Um. Maybe a two years later. Like I was in Ballard. I was on my way to get my hair cut over that barbershop over where me and Todd used to live. And I was coming up through Ballard and I just happened to glance over some side street. I think you did tell me this part. I, did I tell you? Yeah. And, and it was, but actually, you don't tell, you don't usually tell your clients no, this part. Yeah. I don't usually talk about this part. It was her. Yeah. It actually was her. Same car too. Oh. So I, I went up, I, I went up to the intersection. There was a red light. She was two cars back. And, um, thought about it. I, I could get out of my car and go talk to her. And I thought, well, why, why would you do that? But you know, my heart's racing in the thing. And, and I said to myself the exact same thing, Bob, if you were going to accept that the relationship's over, what would you do? And I realized I'd just go get my hair cut. And I was scared for a while after that, that I'd start seeing that car again and start losing it, um, falling backwards because at that point, me and Colleen, was, we were together a year. And um, I didn't, though. I was scared for about two days that I would see, start seeing that car again and start pining. So you weren't pining. No. But you were scared you'd pine. I was scared that I'd fall back. That was yeah. so awful. That six years was awful. You know how, like, they say when you have uh, PTSD, they say you have a foreset- foreshortened sense of the future. Mm. I had that. I was convinced that my life had just lost one of the colors. It was just not going to be better. So all those nights, you and me and Todd and Mike and Beth, we'd play cards or whatever. And all that, there was a part of me that felt dead. Hmm. And um, like, this was all fun. And, you know, I like playing cards with y'all and But what's the point? And, but this is, everything's just got a tinge on it. Everything's in just slightly less something not slightly significantly less something and and that would be my life that I was guessing that that would be the case mm. and yeah. it, it isn't the case but it wouldn't it would I think I'd be vulnerable to it if I hadn't done the grieving and the accepting the, of what is true because mm. the thing is is it doesn't matter if her car is two cars back or 7,000 miles away mm. it's over that's interesting because I
0: think that's the part that isn't usually talked about. You know, because I think a lot of people can relate and it's so cinematic the way you're telling it. The this would be the prologue. The moment where you know, throughout the movie there would be this motif of there's a car and you hallucinate the thing and then yeah, you, maybe even in the in the movie version there's a woman who has her hair from behind and you oh, sure. walk up and it's not her. And it's not her. Sure. We've and seen then, that one. and then in the, and then the climax is you having that radical acceptance moment. And then Colleen walks into your life and then you struggle, but you overcome. And then in the prologue, boom, here's the last temptation of Christ. That was the last time I saw her. And what do you do? Yeah. And how do you feel? You don't actually Pine. You're not wanting to be with her. It's just, oh shit, what if I do? Yeah. That's that's the kicker. Right. I have Colleen now. Right. I have grieved. I have moved on. Yeah, but I'm worried that I will fall back, and then you didn't. Yeah, and then you then you can go on with the rest. Of the- it's almost poetic that you had that. The universe presented you with that because you would never know. You would never know how you would react if she were actually there. Yeah. You always, prior to that, was like you almost wanted... That's the part of it that I think people don't talk about is you almost wanted her to randomly show up so that you could run up to her and win her back. That's the fantasy. That's the fantasy. When you would see a car like hers, it was hope. It was, now is my opportunity. Or maybe she's even coming around, like a, in the back of your mind. Sure. Of course, it's not rational, right. but it's like, she's coming back. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's in my vicinity. Right. That's it, that's the deeper foundational level I oh, think of, of that yeah. feeling that we have, which is hard to accept, you know? It's because th- this is the part that I want to drive home for everyone out there who has been in these shoes or are in these shoes. You can be in you can, you can, ab- abs- how do I say this? <laughs> Post, so in that moment, six years after, before you radically accept, if I were to ask you, do you want to get back together with her? If you were to think about it, if, if for example, she were to say, hey, let's date again, what would you say? Are you talking before? Yeah. Or
1: before? Oh, yeah. for
0: sure. You would have said yes. Yeah. Would yeah, there have been any kind of ambiguity there?
1: No, not then, but there would be later. Okay. So would it have been a
0: a healthy choice to get back together with her? Exactly. <laughs> right.
1: So would you have known it was potentially an unhealthy choice? No. I mean oh, really? I didn't know anything back then about oh. anything. I mean being with Colleen taught me a lot. Okay. But I think that I could not see her through the person back in the wood I couldn't see her through any kind of accurate lens rational lens yeah it's interesting okay
0: well that's a little different than what I thought because I think there's two versions of this one is is yours which is you legit all encompassingly wanted actually to get back together with her and would very unambiguously take her up on an offer of reengaging yeah there's another version of this where you're still grieving and pining is one word for it your heart is still attached to this individual of course six years later but you do not want to get back together with this individual. You intellectually understand that that's not a good move yeah. for all the reasons. Right. But our heart will attach to certain people yeah. when we're with them, for when, especially when we invest a lot of energy in it. This is what cathexis and catharsis was to Freud. We attach emotions and psychic energy, as they would put it, to particular objects, particular people. And... When we invest that energy into those people when they 're taken away from us, for whatever reason, even if we 're the one that leaves it 's hard for our psyches for our libido to de effect, to separate that object, that person, from our libido libidinal energy, yeah, you know? and it so is. it it's normal to long a part of you to long, even though in no way, shape, or form do you want to be with that person. Do you know? Yeah, I do. You can, you yeah. can have a. Well, let me ask you this. And maybe you don't want to answer, but yeah. is there a, you know, a few cells in your heart that's still long or are attached to her?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Yeah, and I think that's normal. Is yeah. that's the and that can hurt. You know, and if you did, for example, run into her or see her randomly, those three cells in your heart yeah. would. Want to go to that? Yeah. The, uh, you know, the billions of other cells in your body would be like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. This, that's over. And because I I think that's the confusing bit for a lot of people is that they, one, if they're experiencing that, they think, is there something wrong with me? Because we don't usually talk about that. And two, if you hear that your partner has those feelings, it can feel like, oh, they're not over it. Right. And what I'll say to people is, if you're dating past the age of eighteen you're and you fall in love with someone and you engage in a committed long-term relationship the person you're involved with some of their cells in their heart are still attached to people in the past just by the function of the fact that you dated them after they dated other people yeah (laughs) after they fell in love with other people so you just have to accept that and it doesn't mean that their love for you is any less it just means that they have a history and they know better and that's that's the nice thing is like they they're In spite of some of their heart wanting to be with previous people, they're with you because they know you're better than those previous people. It's okay that your partner has those attachments. That's human. It means they're not a psychopath in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not that you have to have some of your heart cells still attached to those people, but I would find it to be highly unusual if you fell in love and not a single cell in your heart was still attached. No, I think once you love somebody some party always loves them. Yeah. So, but that's interesting. So why don't you tell that last part of the story? Cause that's a pretty important part. That's, that's the outcome. That's the evidence. That's the kicker. That's like, let me show you me on the other side of a lot of radical acceptance. Yeah. That would be inspirational to people. They would be like, Oh, cause, cause the way that I would really emphasize it to a client is I, I wasn't longing. I was, worried i was going to long (laughs) yeah that's true and i was scared terrified for a few days but then it it never happened it it just it just didn't happen and all that radical acceptance work that i had done which which was a practice it's not just something that i decided oh no that was that was hard it was like mindfulness i had to like dedicate myself to this mindful practice over and over like what thousands of times maybe i don't know hundreds of times yeah probably and at the end of even and along the way at no point was there any guarantee any of this was going to pay off that wasn't the point what In was fact, the point
1: the point is well the point for me was teach my students to so practice it learn it you know but um what was the thing you just said you said something really important it just flew out of my head there was no guarantee it was going to pay off. That's out. right. There's no guarantee that anything in particular is going to happen. That's The point of radical acceptance is not to make a bargain with the universe. It's like, oh, okay, I'll accept this as long as. Uh, we don't get that. Maybe we, that's why you don't tell the story. We, we, <laughs> we only get what is true, so we can accept that that is what is. And as we learn that, what we're going to get out of it, what it's going to become or evolve into is its own thing. But the thing that makes the story important to me is, Radical acceptance, for me, made it possible for there to be Colleen. Mm-hmm. And without radical acceptance, there would have been no Colleen. Now, there's no guarantee that if I radically accept that the relationship is over, that somebody like Colleen is going to come into my life. There's no guarantee. The chances are pretty good. You know, you put yourself out there enough times, you probably find somebody. But there's no guarantee that it'll happen. And that's not the point. You cannot bargain with the universe. You can only accept that which, which is, which is that relationship's over. I don't tell that part of the story because it coincided with um knowing Colleen and um because it scared me. But as I think about it there there isn't any reason. It there's a sensitivity to Colleen's feelings that's important to me and so I don't really talk Oh, you're to saying that. you didn't tell the
0: story to your students because you wanted to protect her privacy?
1: No, because um I don't want Colleen to feel like I still want that. Mm-hmm. And so, if she hears that my heart rate goes up when, on that moment, in that at that traffic light, I don't know what if that would you'd worry her. it
0: would make her jealous or make, yeah, her, or feel make like, her feel like I was like I was saying earlier it'd make her you know yeah feel like a hundred that you're not a hundred percent into her so. I
1: I accept that Colleen some part of Colleen's heart loves everybody she ever loved absolutely and you and and everybody and that's just fine and you could say well we're kind of messy but I don't even think it's messy I think it's just part of the course man when you love somebody that's part of what you get is their history
0: mm-hmm. and god bless that because yeah if you don't have a history like i said you yeah. don't know what you're getting into a naive oh my god romantic partner yeah. is someone who falls in love with a fantasy yeah not with an actual human or relationship right uh, Someone who has a messy history, who has baggage, as they say, is someone that engages with open eyes to the situation. They know what they're getting into. They know what they're choosing. It's sort of like when you're buying a car (laughs) to reduce it. The first car you buy, you don't know what the hell – or maybe the first house that you choose like to rent or buy or something – there's so many things that you just don't know because you've never had to deal with it. Once you have your first car first home renting or buying, you start to realize, oh, I don't like this thing. I like this thing. And so the next thing you do, you you refine it to better meet what you want. Good word. And with relationships, it's often the same thing. You know, that, oh, I don't want that. (laughs) I fell in love with that, but I don't want that there's these other things that i did like but i i don't want that so the next person i'm going to make sure is really what i want i want air conditioning i want a heat pump (laughs) i want (laughs) yeah i don't want gas furnaces right i don't (laughs) know right um all right let's take a break bob and we get back let's have some more tortured analogies like the one i just said (laughs) what do you say (laughs) Alright, we're back from the break. I want to do a little announcement just to remind everyone about the various charities that we give to yeah. If you are a patron of the podcast, we want to thank you. And also, we want you to know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support including Pet Finder. They help animal shelters and rescue groups care for homeless pets in need and connect them with loving homes. They help about you know hundreds of thousands of every year. Damn. Plymouth Housing Group, which is a Seattle mm-hmm. housing group, it provides transitional housing for those in need. Mm-hmm. Camp 10 Trees, which is a camp that provides a safe place for queer youth, a camp. Oh, cool. Trevor Project, which helps to prevent suicide among queer youth. Special Olympics, National Alliance on Mental Illness, Animal Aid and Rescue Foundation, or ARF. Prevent Child Abuse America. Animals Lebanon, which rescues pets in Beirut and connects them with loving homes, which is where I got my cats. Yeah. Environmental Defense Fund, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, Wikipedia. I actually give money to Wikipedia. I, I find like Wikipedia. that it's an important democratizing yeah. yep. of information right. service that they provide, and Doctors Without Borders. Wow. So cool. I just wanted to let everyone know about that. I'm a patron. Annual Epitir patron, Nadine. She says Hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob. Thank you for covering my question in a recent episode. I asked about therapists wearing wedding rings in therapy and feelings of jealousy from clients. From what I heard in the podcast when you were talking about it, I think my question was understood as me asking whether a client would freak out and terminate over this. Hmm. What I was trying to ask was, if this is something that would freak a therapist out if a client disclosed those feelings of jealousy and whether a therapist would terminate with a client for having these feelings of jealousy. I don't think that these feelings of jealousy stem from feelings of anger or hostility towards my therapist, but instead feelings of inadequacy towards myself. I have a fear of abandonment and went through an abrupt termination with my former therapist, and I'm still dealing with that fallout. Mm. I guess that I'm fearful that if any transference takes place in therapy, my current therapist will also terminate with me. Bob, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you wrote back in and talked about this. I get it. It's scary to think that you are unsurvivable or, or in, intolerable, um, and you had that experience with your therapist, and it sort of, you know, reinforced that belief about yourself. A good therapist is not going to be frightened by any of that. In fact, will recognize that that's what's supposed to happen, and that it is entirely safe, and it's okay, and a a poorly trained therapists will not recognize that and believe it means something other than what it really means. What it, what I think it means is you deserve and need a place for to be heard and held in safety and respect, that there's nothing bad in you. And that's what therapy can provide, a corrective experience that you are indeed, you're lovable. These things do not preclude that. So like that David Whalen, he talks about this, he says, well, the reason that you know, teenagers are so difficult, is so that they have a felt sense that they are indeed survivable, that their intense anger, if that's what it is with teens, and, you know, rebellion or whatever, that parents will still love them anyways. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that point of view, I think, holds a lot of water and gives us something really important to think about when it comes to therapy, which is there ain't nothing bad in a client when they have those kind of feelings. It's totally understandable and okay.
0: Yeah. And regarding teens, I think that's a part of it for sure. I don't know if it's the main motivation. In fact, I know it's not the main motivation when a teen will express emotions, but I think that's true for all of us. I think that's true for me. Right. When I have an emotion and I express it, there's a question mark, a a hope that the people who I'm expressing to will accept me and hear me and not run away. Not run
1: away. Yeah. I'm not going to run away from you. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, So,
0: with, yeah, uh, I'm glad you wrote into Nadine as well. And I always am worried I'm going to misinterpret people's emails. I'm sure it happens all the time. It's just one of those things that we have to accept because you're not here to clarify. And All we can do is read and react and you can't be, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. You're not here to do that. So, it just is what it is. But... Yeah, absolutely. To have worries of being rejected right. and to worry that your transference will push a therapist away is normal. And you talk about it, as Bob right. always says. Anonymous annual upper-tier patron, she says, Hi, Dr. Honda and Bob. I was listening to your Patreon episode recently, and as a former Pierce County Designated Christ responder, wow. I wanted to let you know that Quite a few of our local hospitals that provide inpatient psychiatric care do indeed provide intensive outpatient mental health services, and these services are designed to help people like the person who wrote in to the podcast with suicidal ideation. End of email. So, yeah, I I can't remember what the email was about, but they were talking about intensive outpatient services that right. would happen at a facility of right. some sort. I or you or both of us were saying, out of our death. do they have intensive outpatient yeah. at these at these places? Because it's not something that you and I would usually right. be involved with. We've certainly been involved with inpatient sure. and with regular outpatient services, sure. which is what we provide. Right. But intensive outpatient. And so. We just out of the loop. Anonymous annual upper tier patron is a former Pierce County designated christ Pierce County is. Just south of us, in you know, in Seattle, where Tacoma is, and so okay, I didn't even know what a designated crisis crisis responder was. I mean, I know about you have um, you have a
1: county designated
0: MHP, right? MHP is mental health professionals. Is that,
1: I, that's what I took that to mean. Is that that's oh maybe they changed their name or something? I don't know. Does it? Yeah. Well, well, she actually ha, she said Pierce County DCR.
0: Designate, and I had to look it up to designate a crisis responder. Is, so, it, is it the same as? It's that just it's you know. There's a chance that you and I are so out of the loop. Oh, I know I am on these things. Yeah. That uh, there's a whole section of people, right? Even in our town, who are like, "How do you, as therapists, not understand right. these things?" Is this, we? We're in private practice. We have a certain kind of clientele, and, right? Right. You know, rewind the clock twenty years or even ten years. I would have. I lived in this world where there'd right. be a lot of this kind of interaction with right, the, right. You'd with the be, system.
1: You just you just know because you're involved. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Anonymous up to your patron from Canada, they say, I am very grateful for this podcast. It helps me crystallize what I am working on in therapy. Bob, I sincerely appreciate your perspective and your gentle vulnerability and self-disclosure. Just listening to you and Kirk provides me with a calmness that is rare for me. Kirk, your ability to synthesize, summarize, and translate knowledge is exceptional. Most Hmm. of my aha moments happen outside therapy when something you or Bob says just connects some dots and a Hmm. light bulb goes on. I love to listen to the podcast for hours, usually while crocheting, and I thank you sincerely for the content and space you provide." My job includes caring for people with personality disorders. I received no guidance as to how to care for myself while doing this, though. Mm -hmm. It is very helpful to hear someone talking about this the way you two do. Mm -hmm. As, As for my question, can you speak a bit about obsessional obsessive compulsive disorder? I have listened to your deep dive on OCD. But I feel like obsessional OCD is rather insidious and passes under the radar. It can look functional and high-performing to the untrained eye, or it can look like generalist anxiety disorder if you don't ask the right questions. For example, my conscientiousness that I received endless praise for was actually a deep-seated terror of making a mistake that would cause inadvertent harm. It is hard to identify the intrusive thoughts when it feels like your brain runs on intrusive thoughts. Right. I was just curious about how you and Bob approach this type of OCD in your practices. Bob, what do you think?
1: First off, thank you for your kind words. Um, I don't work with OCD anymore, so I don't know that I have any, any, anything to, to offer except, you know, it's clear to me that whoever's wrote in here that they, they know what they're doing and have a, a a good understanding of uh, what that is, a personal understanding, which I think is fantastic. Um, I I don't know what else to say beyond that. How come you don't treat it anymore? I just work with couples. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, pure obsessional OCD or obsessional OCD is basically uh, it's OCD, but there aren't noticeable behavioral routines and rituals. Yeah. It's all in your mind. It's all obsessions.
1: Are those internal compulsions like um, counting or counting or yeah. Okay. They're not there. Or at least they're not things that you can see. So so the compulsions that a person does for the obsession are not present. Is that the idea? Yeah. it's its own thing?
0: Yeah. And I find that this
1: illuminates
0: a massive under, misunderstanding of what OCD is. Because to me, the fact that we even... It's sort of like when people will say that they're a silent borderline. And when I heard their definition of what a silent borderline was, I thought, well, that's just borderline. <laughs> Like you don't need to designate, but because people think of borderline as, by contrast, I guess, loud borderline, where you're hostile and angry and upsetting to people around you, because that's the stereotype, you need this secondary, quote unquote, subtype to contrast with it called silent borderline. But to me, it's all borderline. There's a very big umbrella of what borderline encompasses for me. I don't, when I say borderline, I don't think of loud borderline. I think of all the different types of borderline, including the silent, what they would call silent borderline, quiet or quiet borderline, not silent borderline, quiet borderline.
1: Yeah.
0: And with OCD, it's similar. OCD is a large umbrella. There are so many things underneath the umbrella of OCD. And what often people will think of OCD are the compulsions. Sure. Because that's what's in the movies. Right. it's count- also visible yeah the counting the cleaning of the hands that right. kind of stuff but to me that is a symptom of a symptom <laughs> those are com- the compulsions are a solution to the actual problem which they are, th- are a solution which are the obsessions right the obsessions are the key they and the, the key. foundation yeah. of every obsessive compulsive yes indeed whenever you think of ocd Do not think of the compulsions. Think of the obsessions. They might have compulsions. They might have compulsions you can see. They might have compulsions you don't see. They might have no compulsions, even in their mind. But they definitely have obsessions. You could be absolutely in the throes of horrific OCD and have no
1: rituals. You might have rituals. You might not. So, So we should talk about what is an obsession and what is a compulsion. I don't think it's very well understood. Right. Well, a compulsion. It, well, do you want to describe? Just, sure, describe? I'll take a run at it. So, uh, an obsession is basically a thought that causes tremendous anxiety, and a compulsion is a response to the thought that is um, aimed at reducing the anxiety. Oftentimes, the compulsions will have a temporary benefit, like so. For instance, washing my hands, I'm germ free, and uh, but the but what it'll end up doing is um, reinforcing. The compulsion to come, or the obsession to come around again. Like the only response I can have to this is to wash my hands. And really, what's needed is you want to expose to obsessions and block compulsions in order to do treatment. So I don't know that there is. I understand what you're saying about OCD and and uh, that OCD always has obsession. I remember my OCD teacher saying, "There's always obsession. There's always something that kicks it off." So and that's the thing that you really want to get at because that's what you want to expose to with And block all the responses so that the person can recognize that it's it's an image or it's a thought or it's that thing that happens to me that brings on anxiety and it's to be survived like the wave that it is and and I don't have to you know wash my hands or stay on a 12 by 12 you know bed sheet and sort of avoid all the contamination of the universe right it isn't it isn't it isn't necessary so block the, so I had a, I had a client and he had a OCD. This is many years ago. had OCD. He had a, um, a germ thing, but not for himself. He wasn't afraid of getting sick. He was afraid of getting his family sick, his, his uh, partner and kids. And so we ob- exposed to the obsession, which is we ate quote contaminated food together. And then he went home and he kissed his wife and kids Contaminated from a garbage can or a toilet seat or toilet a, seat. Right. We rubbed my lunch on a toilet seat and both had some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was this a public toilet seat? It was in the office building where I worked, so yeah, yeah. I
0: guess so. Yeah, public, right? Yeah. I mean not frequently used. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. Like a McDonald's. But I I had pooped there. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And there was obviously a huge buildup to that it wasn't like oh
1: yeah we didn't just do that no 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 he and i talked about it there were many other things that we did it's for for weeks or months one of the dramatic things that we ended up doing it was on his list of obsessions is contaminating his wife and kids and so he did he went home no mouthwash no wash it down with water nothing just go home and contaminate your kids how does wife feel about it (laughs) Did yes. she know? When, when, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> I, I would hope that she would have a good
0: laugh about it. But Well, and if she knew the bigger picture, she would appreciate oh, she the benefit. Yeah, yeah. she for, has for a him. good savvy. Of, it's not like that's right. his main practice now is to eat food off of toilet seats. But for him to not suffer anymore, it, it would be a good thing. Yeah, so with what they'll call pure O or pure obsessional or obsessional OCD. You could have someone who thinks about all the things and is suffering in all the ways that people with OCD do, but they are not washing their hands 10 times a day. They're not counting the tiles on the floor. They're not praying 10 times a day. They're not uh, restricting their food or running 50 miles a day, you know, whatever the compulsion is. They're suffering with the the baseline the foundation of of OCD you just they just haven't locked into a compulsion right or a noticeable compulsion so right. so to me this designation because it's not really something in the OCD world that I hear people talking about like do you remember he- hearing people talk about pure obsessional OCD when no. you were doing? yeah I feel like it's something that's more of an internet thing because of the misunderstanding on the internet about what OCD is. So they, it's like with quiet borderline, The I don't know if we came up with that term. I think that was a layman's designation because of the layman's misunderstanding of what borderline is. There's a layman's misunderstanding of what OCD is, so they need to come out with this obsessional. It's fine. I, I I don't think it's a bad idea. It just, I guess, clarifies it. But it, I think, has the potential of creating misunderstanding of when some you know if someone were to contrast and say well that person just has regular ocd and they don't have pure o ocd then somehow that means they absolutely will have compulsions which i wouldn't assume anyway so yeah pure obsessional is something that some people will talk about and let's see what you are asking here anonymous up at your page shown from canada you're saying that It can be misdiagnosed, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Uh, Clinicians some don't really understand OCD, and you do have to ask specific questions. And a lot of people with OCD don't know they have OCD because they think that it's rational. Right. So you have to have ways of interviewing people, or you know, educating them, that kind of thing. You're also saying that some people will get misdiagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. The thing with it's especially with pure obsessional OCD and generalized anxiety disorder is that they there's a lot of overlap in yeah. terms of the symptoms. Right. And so to me, it doesn't really matter. You know, when I have a client who is in this category, it, I don't think of them as one or the other. I just think of them as having the anxiety that they do and the obsessions that they do. If If I call it OCD, I call it OCD. If I call it generalized anxiety disorder, I call it that the treatment will be the same because it'll be tailored to the individual and will probably involve exposure and cognitive behavioral therapy. So is it quote unquote misdiagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder? Well, it could be, but it also, it could be argued that it meets those criteria as well. As long as the treatment is working, it doesn't really matter what you have and there and there's it's not a biological difference there's not a a huge difference between those two for for a lot of people so they're worrisome or intrusive images that come into head or thoughts or whatever yeah 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 I'll, i'll get a lot of questions more broadly along these lines around ocd they'll be like oh what about this subtype and what about this subtype you know you didn't talk about this subtype and what i'll say to that is totally I I get that but at the same time there's a lot of subtypes to a lot of things you know and with OCD when you understand the basics when you really understand it which is not out there in the public when you really understand the suffering of the obsessions and that the compulsions emerge from those obsessions and can get locked in often and become a feedback loop to the the obsessions as you were talking about earlier when you really understand it then the different subtypes don't really feel like necessarily distinct things because they're all just under the larger umbrella of OCD. It's similar to depression. If you understand depression in its pure form or you really understand what depression is, then the different quote unquote presentations or subtypes of it, because you can have someone who's absolutely suffering from crippling depression, but they appear like everything's fine and they're laughing at work or you might have someone who doesn't think about suicide and but they're depressed or you might have someone who cries a lot or another person who doesn't or someone who has zero motivation to get out of bed and you have another person who seems to be doing okay at work even though they're incredibly depressed so when when you really understand depression you know you could imagine that that would be out there in the lay public of like well I don't have depression I have normal functioning depression where I where I can go to work because they they uh, they think of depression as something that means that you can't function when right. a lot of people can function in in dimensions of their life with full-blown absolutely debilitating depression behind the scenes. Right. So, it's similar to OCD that people will say, "Well, what about this subtype? What about that subtype?" and I I just say think like, "Well, totally, and we can talk about it, but it to me I feel like when I was doing the deep dive, I was talking about all of those subtypes. You know what I mean?
1: I think the diagnoses are only useful insofar as they point us at a good treatment when we, if we, I'm presuming we have one. And so the treatment for phobia is, you know, the the gold standard I think is still exposure therapy. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't matter. You just have to know what the phobia is so that you can expose to the right stuff. But understanding this subtype or that, does it actually add something? Or is it really about you know, is it trivial? Yeah, I don't. I mean, trivial in the sense that there's trivia. There's like, well, this yeah. kind of phobia and that kind of, and this one has this name and that. Right. You know, interesting, right? Really yeah. fascinating. I mean, I, I'm I'm with you, but if it doesn't add anything, then does does the does the focus on those subtypes? interfere. Right. I think that's behavior. what I'm trying to get at.
0: You're, you're articulating <laughs> in a much shorter way. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. exactly that. That I think that focusing on subtypes appears to be interfering with the greater understanding of the disorder as a whole by, by assuming that it's different than what I was talking about before, yeah. which it, in my mind is not. Now, there is one type of OCD that I will say did elude me Clinically, which was religious subtype of OCD. I can't really? remember what they call it, but there's a there's a word for it. it's not religion, but these individuals will be obsessed with the notion that they're going to hell, or their family's going to hell, or that God's going to punish them, and so they pray all day long, or they have to do very, really elaborate rituals to please God, mm. and it'll completely dominate their lives. They'll have to pray a very specific way. And you can see how some religions would actually play into this, right? I can, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The rosary rosary. and the DDD. and, And so there are some people that will have this version of OCD, which is kind of different, right? It It's totally underneath the umbrella of OCD, but when I first heard of a case like this, I didn't recognize it as OCD. I thought it was actually schizophrenia.
1: Oh, no shit. Because, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 right.
0: Because the way that they were talking, they were sure that yeah. there was the hammer of God right over their
1: family member's head if they didn't pray literally 20 hours a day. Sounds like a delusion. Well, before anybody writes in about the rosary, we're talking about the rosary as as a, a a means by which somebody might be pulled into compulsion, might attach their OCD to. We're not we're not saying that praying a rosary is a bad thing. I actually think that it it's a inducer, which is its point. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an. I don't even know
0: what the rosary is exactly. I've only seen it in movies. It it just looks a little ritualistic and very. I could imagine someone. <laughs>
1: Because there'sn't there something you're supposed to do on each bead. Each bead you do a uh, Hail Mary and uh something else, and I don't actually know what it is either, but you just work your way around the beads. Yeah. But Buddhists have prayer beads too. Right. Same, same, same reason. Right.
0: So you can imagine that someone could, could. if they were needed to follow a particular ritual right. and and we, you know, and I have mild O C D tendencies. Like like I'm actually doing it right now. If I will Dig my fingernail into the side of my finger. I'm gonna block that compulsion just just as a as a t as a habit'm I'm, I've coming done it over since there. I I'm gonna block
1: me some compulsions
0: and so when I do it, I always have
1: to do it on my other hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't have to, but no, I, I know your I, body I, just i do it habitually i think humans I don't know maybe i'm i'm uh, uh, I'm generalizing from my own to the general case of humans, but I think that it's actually pretty common some some low level whatever. The thing about to distinguish between whether or not it's it's a thing is does it cause significant interference in yeah. occupational social functioning? That's the big one, right? I mean, it seems to bother you when I do it. it seems like you. Oh, you, I'm going to. You, you have of a compulsion. Compulsion. You have a
0: compulsion about my. I'm doing oh, it right in front of his face. Oh, I'm
1: coming over. He's still doing it. Oh, he's doing both hands. Yeah,
0: I, it's funny. I I don't think I realize I always do it on the, my two smallest fingers. I don't really do it on these other fingers. I've always done it on these
1: two. You can expand your compulsion as the day unfolds.
0: Uh, It doesn't feel right on my other fingers. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's answer more questions. What do you say? Yep. All right, this next question is from annual patron Manny. She writes, hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob. I recently started exposure and response prevention therapy for my relationship anxiety and OCD. Wow. So, this is just timing in exposure. This is what we've been talking about exposure and response prevention. Did you use that specific protocol, or did you just use? General exposure and
1: I don't think I know what that protocol is, other yeah. than what I got taught to do when I went to OCD school. Right. Uh, there's a lot of uh, these
0: branded protocols in various therapies, including OCD, and I, th- I imagine this is one of them. I haven't heard of it, but I'm quite sure based on the title that it
1: is what you and I do, and uh, uh, it's just a particular brand. Oh, that's like that EFT thing. Sue Johnson did not affect did not invent attachment based therapy. <sighs> but she's got it packaged in such a way that blah, 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 blah. This might be one of those. Going on with
0: Manny, she says, I had previously done six months of psychotherapy, but that only made my anxiety worse. So to remind people, she was talking about how she had relationship anxiety and OCD. I had previously done six months of psychotherapy, but that only made my anxiety worse. We would just talk and talk about all the things about my partner or my relationship that worried me, and that made me hypercritical of my partner. Mm. After a while, I also felt bad that we were analyzing my partner's upbringing without him being in the room. Mm. So just chiming in here, any response to that, Bob?
1: Um, it doesn't sound like it was all that useful, and it's not something I would do if I were a therapist. Yeah. I will say that I'm
0: not not doing those things, but to only do those things- To only do. Yeah. Is a real common pitfall for therapists, to a pit that you know, you can fall into in therapy where essentially- the client comes in and says, my husband, you're not going to believe what he did. Right. And then as a therapist, if you have no checks and balances on your perspective, right. you, will, you will be seduced into believing the perspective of your client.
1: Yes, that's why individual therapists need to have relational training.
0: Yeah. So you can start to believe, well, my client has very little responsibility or culpability. Now, it's possible that that's true, but it's not likely. Not likely. And then... Over time, you just become more and more convinced that your your client's husband is the problem, and your client is a victim of it. Because that's the way we all we're all a victim in our own (laughs) storyline. You know, it's our first reaction is never what did I do to contribute to this. Our first reaction is. How am I being put upon? Right. How is my partner wronging me? Right. What's the injustice here? And so, if that's all you hear, and that's as far as you go as a therapist, then that's as far as the therapy is going to go.
1: I when I when I'm when this comes up, I'm always thinking about how does that partner's behavior make sense, not what's wrong with it. What do you mean? I mean that I'm going to be thinking in a larger picture that their behavior takes place in a relational context. That's you know, they're co-reinforcing uh, right. cycle. Right, exactly. So
0: it sounds like they were in that zone yeah. for Manny, and she's like, yeah, I didn't really like it. And then she says, I decided to give exposure and response prevention therapy a try because I tend to overreact and be impulsive when I perceive that my partner is not being caring towards me. Hmm. And I thought yeah. I'd be it'd be helpful to learn to distance myself from my thoughts a little. Huh. So just chiming in here, it sounds like she was convinced by a therapist or the or online, which isn't a bad idea. I, th- I think it's it's fine. Depends on how you implement it, but that she would expose herself in therapy to the notions of she she says because I tend to overreact and be impulsive when I perceive that my partner is not being caring towards me. So right. the exposure <laughs> would be to the stimuli that make her believe that she's not being cared for right and to relax and habituate to that so that she doesn't have a trigger and flip out and then get angry at him right which you could argue even outside of exposure and response prevention therapy is what all good therapy should involve elements of is to understand what's happening with your partner to interpret it in a more charitable way and to soothe yourself to differentiate those moments that kind of stuff going out with email but now i wonder if exposure and response prevention therapy is really what i need isn't my problem that i have an anxious attachment style and therefore i should try to heal that and move towards security i worry that exposure and Response prevention therapy is just going to teach me to live with anxiety and not heal it. And if so, what kind of therapy would be better suited? Bob, what
1: do you think? How about couple therapy? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a problem that you're having with your partner. Just probably has a cyclical nature to it. Probably something that comes around and interferes with your relationship being a resource for comfort and soothing. Don't get me wrong. I think that if you can um, differentiate and manage your anxiety on your own, that's great. Like, like we all need to do that, but we all don't need to do one thing. We need to do a lot of things. That just be one of them. And the other one is, you know, one other one anyways, how do I help it so that my relationship is more a resource for comfort and soothing? So I get grumpy when Colleen is prepping for a party, you know, like, because she can get really consumed in all the details and lose track of me and it makes me feel like lonely and disconnected
0: is that currently happening
1: this week it not today it might (laughs) but but in fact to some degree it will but the last time it happened was new year's eve and and instead of being a grump about it i I just asked for what i wanted which was i want to have connection with you yeah i had never done that before i'm usually i'm very good at bitching about what i don't get but actually seeking that which i want was tremendously relieving for both of us yeah and she delivered she, we were at a casino at one in the morning. It was fun. Oh, she—that was her connecting. No, that was just that was just one aspect of it. Oh. Like, there's no way she was going to do that. But we had such a lovely evening, yeah. all of us. And then you and me and her went out to that casino and at her behest. Yeah, I know, right? She was she was the she was the ringleader.
0: <laughs> I mean, that was not even on my radar. And then when she suggested it, I'm just like, I'm like, no, we're not going to go to a casino. At one in the morning, it's
1: like five minutes later, Uber's here. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Anyways, um, using my relationship as a resource was really smart, and you know, perhaps there's an element of that that's available to the person writing in here. Yeah, couple therapy would
0: be the best case scenario with a therapist that was good, which isn't always guaranteed. No, if you don't want to do that, or your or your client or your client, your husband doesn't want to do that, your partner, the other option is to find a therapist that does this kind of work with couples or right. at least understands it because it's just unfortunate that we can't tell you just go to a therapist because you could find a therapist that does what your previous therapist said we don't know if the previous therapist was bad but yeah. we know therapists that will do that yeah where they just become seduced by the client's point of view they don't have a systemic understanding they don't have an understanding of attachment theory that was me And so they'll just engage in agreeing with the client the whole time. Yep, I've done that. And there's nothing wrong with validation. Oh, yeah, validation, good. Support, but it's not not very helpful in the end um, to actually help people to change their relationships. It can make it worse. Yeah. You can actually contribute to
1: clients believing in their own bullshit. You know what I mean? Right. Validation is necessary but insufficient. Yeah. And and well and what do you validate right make sure what you're validating is indeed the
0: facts right you can validate it felt this way to you right that's it, a fact yeah but you you might want to be careful before you validate statements like you know our conflict is 100% my partner's fault right like validating that might actually make it worse right. for your client
1: it's because they don't care about me well yeah i don't want to validate that it felt that way it, yeah you definitely and that's normal that.
0: to feel that way <laughs>
1: That story went off inside, that's for sure. Yeah. You know that.
0: Right. So, you know, finding a therapist that is actually helpful along these lines. And maybe if you find, if your partner doesn't want to go to therapy, if you find a couple's therapist, for example, marriage and family therapist may be more likely to understand these questions. More likely, things. yeah. But not sure. necessarily is the thing. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I don't know. And maybe the question to ask the therapist as you're screening them is, so... Well, maybe just read this email to them and see what they say. That's a great idea. Yeah, because it's pretty well uh, summarized. All right, one more email, Bob. Yep. Annual upper tier patron. She says Hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob. Thank you for all that you give your listeners. I've written this before, but I cannot fully express my gratitude to you, Bob, for your openness and honesty about your own journey. So that's what they want to say to you. Thank you. I'm curious if you have any insight or advice related to expressing needs and wants. I have a therapist that I'm still working to trust and see as a safe person, perhaps for the first time in my life. So I said that word. I have a therapist that I'm still working to trust and see as a safe person perhaps for the first time in my life, I am also slowly learning to recognize and accept that I have needs and wants. It's terrifying to me to voice those needs and wants, doubly so if I'm asking for them to be met. The problem is when I finally do ask my therapist or anyone else to meet a need or want of mine, I am unable to accept their doing so as genuine. For example, if I ask for reassurance, any resulting reassurance just feels like coerced or placating me. Any advice or insight, Bob?
1: Yeah. Um, first off, me too, to to a large degree. Yeah. I'd say everybody. <laughs> you'd say it's all of us, yeah, to oh, some yeah. degree or other? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we
0: all have the fantasy that mommy will just love us and give to us without us asking. Because that's the way it was when we were pre-verbal. They, we just cried and they just gave us food or comforted us or something. We would all love that to be the case. But that is... We, you have to grow up and you, and you have, and have to wrong. have a, you have to be a mature adult who understands that the world doesn't revolve around you. And you're crying. You have to ask for things. You have, yeah, to, that's you have true. to be specific and it has to be mutual. Yeah. And so we're all like that right. <laughs> is the thing. And if you have relational traumas around those, then right. you're going to be particularly busted up about being vulnerable and asking right? because you don't trust
1: that they'll actually deliver. Right. So, the The thing I would suggest to you is that um, it's important that um, the person know what they're being asked because they're not being asked for, hey, for reassurance. That's just ostensible. I mean, it's important. but So here's what they taught me in couple therapy school. They said, Bob, it doesn't matter who you are. Vulnerability always feels like jumping off a cliff. Yeah, You never want to just jump. If you just jump, then the person that you jump to doesn't know what they're being asked. So you always lead with fear. It's usually fear. So I always say to my clients, my couples, I'm like, you got your toes right off the edge of a cliff. You have to describe this to your partner what this is like for you to to get ready to leap, how scary it is. And when you do that, someone who loves you will generally slow down and be still and and be available. Now that's not always, you know, because sometimes that kind of need can trigger the other person. Doesn't matter. I mean, that can happen. In which case, you just got to work with that. It's just triage. So, anyways, but you have to describe the fear. So like when you're expressing a need or a want to your therapist, one possibility that's available that I'd like you to consider is letting them know how fucking scary it is if you haven't already so that they really understand what's being asked and then jump, but don't do it before. Yeah. I was really surprised when they took, they told me that in couple therapy school and it took me a long time to understand why and what that is because I can ask Colleen for reassurance, but she might not know what I'm really asking unless mm-hmm. she knows how scared I am and then I always say it they they say it goes like this it's like I'm really scared and then partner is like well I'm right here if you want to jump I will catch you and then jumping because then you know because then the actual the actual expression of need is is fully realized
0: yeah like when Colleen is wrapped up and planning for a party yeah and you have a topic sentence where you want connection, but you might have to lay it out for her. Oh yeah. It'd help to lay it out because that could be a billion different things. Right. So if you were to lay it out for
1: her, what would that sound like? It'd say, Oh, you know, that's that thing that happens when we have a party and you get wrapped up in all these details and I miss you. And it's really scary for me to talk to you about it. You know me, I usually get angry and kind of bitchy. Right. Right. I don't want to do that, and the thing is that I really do feel scared, that I'm going to lose you, and I'm af- I'm afraid to actually reach for you. And she just sat there and she looked at me and she waited. And so I just said, I I need to know that we're connected, through the thing. And right then, George came up, came came over. He knocked on my door, and came in. Uninvited or just before? He was a couple minutes early. Uh-huh. George is our very good friend, probably the sanest person I know, <laughs> and he just happened to show up in that moment. And but that's okay because um, where we were in our conversation was sufficient; it was enough. We had, we had a lovely evening. Yeah. So, do you think she understood if George hadn't walked up, what you were looking for in that moment? Yeah, I think there was enough. There was enough expression of um, fear of turning yeah. to her.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially when you said, "I'm afraid of losing you," yeah. because that Im- heavily implies a very quick reassurance of you're not losing me, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I and I'm just I'm just scared, scared. about this party. Yeah. It has nothing to do with right. my feelings towards you, you know. And that could be all that you need to hear. Maybe not, but right. but it, it's heavily implied. Right. A, a more direct way of telling someone is. Just tell me that you love me and you're not going to leave me. So, yeah, I, that's I, lovely. I, I say that because I feel like, especially when you're embarking on this, you know, with you and Colleen, you've been down this road a number of times. She probably knows what you're looking for. But with
1: new, well, I conversa- like what you just said, huh? I really like what you just said. That'd be it, a hard one and a good one for me. It's even
0: more vulnerable. It's more right? vulnerable. And as annual upper tier patron is saying, it's like, hey. Uh, or anonymous up patron, your I, patron, I'm starting to use these little abbreviations and I, I use the word A. That's probably anonymous up patron. Anyway, the question is, well, I feel like whenever I do finally ask my therapist or anyone else to meet my needs, it's hard for me to accept it as genuine. And there's a couple things I'll say to that one is, is to reiterate what Bob has been saying and to be specific, at least behaviorally. And then the other part is, it does require work on your part to actually convince yourself it is genuine, because and this is a part of therapy that is not often discussed. You know, the in order for a corrective experience to be a corrective experience, it has to be corrective. Just joking. It the the person, the individual that it's going to be corrective for. They have to perceive it as genuine. They have to perceive it as real. Because if if they perceive it as not real, as not genuine, as not authentic, as right. coerced, then that is not corrective, if anything, that could make it worse. Because the only love you're ever getting is because you coerced it or it's placating you. So right. if you are misperceiving, which in all likelihood you are, yeah. now, might your partner be kind of coerced and ki- kind of placating? Maybe. Maybe. But that's not the whole story they also in all likelihood love you and want to do this for you and you have to see it as that you know like another more mundane example is when you're being complimented someone is saying oh you look good or hey i you're a good coworker," or hey you're a smart guy or you're a good friend if you in that moment choose to blow it off ah, they're just saying that well then One, that's a harm to you because you're not benefiting from a genuine compliment.
1: They're giving their, their, their truth as they see it, and rejecting that is offensive. It's like, I'm giving something to you. Yeah. It's hard. Of course, it's related to your relational traumas,
0: but you have to work on that. You can't just engineer corrective experiences and sit back and hope that it'll, you have to play an active role and actually not only set up the corrective experience, which is a lot of activity and a lot of trust and a yeah. lot of vulnerability, yeah. but then you have to actually convince yourself in your heart and in your mind. Now, it's not going to be fully convincing at first, but you have to push against the intrusive thoughts that, it's, that are coming in They're that saying that's inauthentic. It's not real. You have to act like it's true. Y- yeah. Getting back to what you're saying, what would I do... If I accepted that this was at least partially authentic, you know, even the word placating I find to be problematic because When I ask my wife to care for my emotions one could say she's placating me I want her to placate me. (laughs) That's the whole point of love is to placate each other is to Accommodate (laughs) is to give when you don't want to give is to maybe even reluctantly give at times but that's what love is. That's what a good relationship is. And we're now as I was saying earlier, we all wish we could go back to when we were 9 months old and we and mommy just gave us and and we didn't even know our moms had
1: feelings cuz we didn't care developmentally. Of course, you know, they say that parents get it right about 30% of the time, which isn't that much. So that might be an idealized version of what we had when we was nine months old.
0: Yeah, but some people would take 30% over what they're getting. Well, you
1: know that's I mean? a great point.
0: That's a great point. Uh, but also, there's this fantasy that yeah, mommy fantasy. is only there for us and right. has no other thoughts. And, you know, and so we want that. And if you did, never got that at nine months old, mm-hmm. then you want that at 36 years sure. old. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. But you're never going to get it is the thing. And, and you can only approximate it. You can have corrective experiences by having people love you. But the loss and the grief of I'm never going to get that pure, unadulterated fantasy love that I deserved when I was a kid, that's just never going to happen. And that's another part of the, the work of these corrective experiences is take what you can get, take it in let it do it it's work but you're never going to get potentially what you're seeking because you can't go back in time now you can have brief moments where it can feel in that direction like if for example you go to your partner and you're just like I just want you to hold me and rub my 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 head <laughs> you know put your hands through my hair mm. and tell me that I'm a good person mm-hmm. for 10 minutes you know in a very maternal way okay but again you had to ask for it mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, your adult mind knows that your partner isn't your mom and isn't necessarily
1: only thinking about you so it's not going to be it's not going to be perfect mm-hmm. is the thing but they're there because in part because at least in part they want to be yeah they want to be available they want to be a resource the thing is is you can't see the bad stuff's easier to believe that's julia roberts from pretty woman so you know it's gospel <laughs> Right. So, so those of us who have this vulnerability, we're going to like, you know, have a part of us that's apt to believe, but, but the belief is still, a, it's just a belief. It's like, there's no evidence that they didn't mean the compliment. There's no evidence of that. There's just a habit of mind that says, oh, well, huh, I didn't do that good a job. I'm not that good of a coworker, blah, 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 blah. Right. but But the bad stuff is where the brain is trained to go. It's actually more likely that the person means it because why would anybody do that unless they were, you know, Eddie haskell and you? Eddie Mm -hmm. Haskell. There's there's one for some people. I don't know who that is. Anyways. um, He died not that long ago. Did he? Yeah. Uh, Oh, I think I read that. Yeah. I
0: think a number of Leave it to Beaver people died in the same span. Yeah, Tony Dow died. Yeah. Yeah, Tony Dow and Eddie Haskell died. And uh, whoever.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like
0: pretty close to each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think jerry mathers didn't oh he passed on a while back i thought jerry mathers was still with us oh you know he didn't want that job when when they gave it to him really yeah i read that recently no he's still with us he's still with us okay
0: yeah yeah it still looks the same he's 74
1: yeah well you know the most likely thing is they mean it it's sincere that's the most likely thing to that's the most likely possibility is that they actually mean it my therapist says to me bob are you safe And it's funny, it took me a long time to actually figure out what the hell that means. Well, nobody's going to kick in the door. He's not going to hit me. He hasn't berated me. You know, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. So yeah, so last week he says to me, are you safe? And I went through the same, you know, mental gymnastic, which is, yeah, I'm safe. And there's a part of me that's like, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? But the truth is, is I am safe. So, and then the thing I add to it is I'm working on kindness.
0: Right, so in those moments you could... Give in to the intrusive thought oh, yeah. that, well, pff, you know, he's just a therapist, I'm paying him, Yeah, I'm not really safe, right. come on. Yeah. You make a choice. You come to a Y in a road thousands of times every session, and you choose most yeah. of the time to believe, no, I'm going against the grain in terms of my impulse. I'm going to believe that I actually am safe. Yeah. That, that, there's a lot of evidence that I'm safe, right?
1: That right. There's evidence. This that, isn't going to help me unless I believe it's safe, right? So, so at least turn in that direction. Can't make myself accept it, but I can turn towards it again and then again and again and again. Maybe then. it's safe.
0: Is maybe the better way that yeah. the why in the road is this is definitely not safe. Yeah. It's definitely being coerced. Right. It's, it's not real. Right. The other direction is
1: maybe it is safe. Maybe it is safe. Yeah, I mean, what what a shock! I I feel tremendous love and care for my clients. Maybe my therapist feels love and care for me.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure his love for you is like upper echelon. Well, I would maybe so. even for you. I mean, the way that you talk about the way that he treats you yeah, is like a, really, really upper echelon care, yeah. and how easy it is to care for you, and how easy I'm sure you are as a client. You know, because you're uncomplicated you're probably the easiest disorganized client (laughs) on the planet because you understand it you know
1: that's very funny
0: because you understand it you know you're not the transference is understood by you yeah that's true that's true
1: yeah Yeah, anyway so that possibility i think they wrote in with this kind of question right about what do you do if you don't accept it and we're giving a lot of advice about what yeah. Do you do? I get that it's hard.
0: It is not easy, but it is a practice. And the practice is along the lines of what Bob said a long time ago in this episode, what if I accepted that this might be real? Yeah. This might be authentic. What if I accepted that it wasn't just coerced or placated? Right. What if I trusted? What would that look like? oh interesting. How would
1: I Ooh, how horrible. would I
0: see what would I do? Yeah. And you just re- and Bob with his grief process, he had to ask that question to himself hundreds of times. Yeah, before it took hold. Yeah, chip away. Yeah, yeah. Ken Osmond, who played Eddie Haskell, died two years ago. Oh, two years. Yeah.
1: Tony Dow was recent. Is that right?
0: Uh, well, just getting to so Ken Osmond. I'm looking at Wikipedia. Yeah. Which, as a patron, you're giving money to. Uh. In 1970, he joined the Los Angeles Police Department and grew a mustache in an effort to remain relatively anonymous. He became a police officer. I could totally see why a guy would do that. After being a one of the most recognizable, successful actors in the world, yeah. he becomes a police officer. It's just so interesting. Yeah. And then he returned to acting in 83. Really? Yeah. Huh. He was on some the things. But he died... In oh, his like home. Like, and Love Boat? That's 70, uh, let's see. Well, he was on the new Leave it to Beaver. Oh, my god. There goodness. was a television movie. Oh, revival of the comedy series. The new Leave it to Beaver. I think, I
1: think I remember that.
0: It was like a revival. Yeah, of all the same actors. And then they had their kids. Oh, okay, got thing. it, got it, got
1: it. Hey, you know who died? Uh, the, the mom in Christmas Story just passed on last week. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh.
0: Ken yeah. Osmond died and then tony dow died darren mcgavin last summer
1: he died last summer tony dow yeah i thought i read that
0: yeah liver cancer oh poor guy and he was 77 wow barbara billingsley died in 2010 she was in the original airplane and hugh beaumont died in 82 wow he died a long time ago he did what did he die of died of heart attack while visiting his son a psychologist in germany um so, what I've just figured out, and Jerry Mathers is still with us, the last one. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Mathers joined the military during the Vietnam War wow. in 1966. Oof. So, when he became of age, he, he joined the Air Force. Wow. I mean, the kids in Leave it to Beaver became cops or military guys. I mean, that was a different time. Wow. When becoming an actor wasn't necessarily the end of your career, you know? Like, you Because know, if you have success like that, especially a show like that, I think it was like half of every TV was tuned in to Leave it to Beaver in 1960, you know? Because yeah. I think it was primetime TV. Yeah, I, think I think it was, it was like was. 7 o'clock t- television. Yeah, And that the stars of those shows would just enter regular life. It right. a different time, you know? Right. Somehow I respect that. I guess. Does it change your idea of Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow to think that they were regular, regular, just regular guys with regular careers after the show was over?
1: It makes sense. I mean, most most child actors didn't grow on to be adult. I mean, does it even happen now? I guess kids come out of Disney and turn into something. Yeah, no, that's true. There's a lot of child actors. In fact, I would
0: say the majority don't have a a career as an adult, either because... They just don't get gigs, right. or they choose not to. Choose I guess not to yeah, maybe maybe that's things. maybe that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. That was us going down that rabbit hole. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.